Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guest, please make sure to go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a supporter of the show. Our show survives because of supporters like you. And so if you want to keep it going, please make sure to go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. If you know someone who's benefiting from it, if you enjoy it, if you actually want to be on it at some point, let's make sure, let's partner to make sure it stays on the air for as long as possible. And now for today's guest, I have Jarette Bullion. Jarette is a co-founder of the I Got Out movement and a lifelong educator who brings discernment, compassion, and understanding to the psychoeducational journey of cult recovery. She published her book, An Everyday Cult, in May 2021 and is currently working on a new project called Misunderstood. Jarette has a BA in elementary education and special education and earned her master's degree in cult awareness education from the School of Life, she says. This training occurred during her 18-year odyssey with Doug, which is a fictitious name, but a real person, who was the leader of something called the Center for Transformational Learning, which is also a fictitious name for a real group. This is an interesting thing about Jarette and a lot of people I talk to that their story is what's important a lot of the time, not necessarily the name of the group or the name of the leader. And I'm so glad that she's on the show today to talk about her story. Here's Jarette now. It is very nice to have Jarette with me today. I am excited to be able to talk to you. So before we get started, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself? My name is Jarette Bullion, and I was part of a cultic group for 18 years. I often say 18 years, four months, and 28 days, and that's because of my abrupt exit uh, from the group. And I have been out since uh, May 28th of 2014. And since then, my work has really been devoted to understanding what it was that I went through. I'm an educator, um, have been most of my life. And I was like, how did this happen to me? What, what went wrong? I was actually a special educator for many years. So I've really loved working with and understanding the how the brain works. And my brain had obviously gone through quite a, a segue <laughs> uh, for, for a number of years. And I am, you know, honored and delighted to be, to be back into a place where I can speak from the center of my being and not referencing uh, my life so much from a, another place. Oh, I like that. I think it's interesting that you mentioned being someone who uh, is a special education person who really has learned about how the mind works and how to teach. And so much of what you're doing now is teaching, which is really lovely, being able to help doing education and prevention. It's it's interesting too, just as a link, just before I became 
a therapist when I went into my master's program to become a therapist. My undergrad was in uh, special education. So I have teaching credentials also in special ed. And for a while was doing uh, support groups for uh, families who had kids with special needs or the siblings of those with special needs. It's interesting too, because I've often told people when they've come out of cultic groups and they were evaluated based on how they did and their level of perfection, that one of the gifts I learned from doing special ed was that it was the process, not necessarily the finished product, that really was the focus. You know, if you could get the courage to do something, or if you had a strong enough pincer grasp to hold on to the pencil while you were doing it, or if you could just sit for a little bit longer, just the, or if you could enjoy yourself along the way. But what you created at the end of the day, that was less important than the process. It feels like within cults, it's so much about what you do and how well you do it or how perfectly you do it. I don't know if the process along the way is given very much merit. Oh, that is so awesome. I love I love this link that we have because I have to say my work as a special educator was definitely some of the most fruitful part of my life in the past. And to kind of use that analogy of how life actually is about the process. And in the group that I was a part of um, for all those years, there was a real, as there are in many, I think, probably safe to say every group, there is like an outer goal, this unattainable goal that's outside of oneself that actually takes us away from the process of being in the present. I find that so interesting. And also I realized when I got out eight years ago, I had a, went through a bit of a process for a couple of years and really considered whether I wanted to go back to school to become a therapist to really focus on what you do, Rachel, in terms of the working with people and this enormous need that there is to work with people who are in cult recovery. And I made a really conscious decision. I realized that I'm an educator and that that's really where my, where my heart is, where my love is. And I say where my skills are, and I'm very much someone who, you know, my skills are in progress. I'm developing all the time because this is such a new way and a new world to educate in. Certainly the modern day world is very different than it was, you know, 50 years ago when I was really active as a, as a special educator. Right. Yes. When people have certain degrees or they really have learned about how people learn, they're also in a field that is so much about how to explore things and to question and to use deductive reasoning and critical thinking. There, a lot of people are much tougher on themselves when they get caught up in something and then they think it like you said, how did this happen to me? Or uh, even kind of with more consternation directed at the self, how did I let this happen? How did I not see it? Uh, You know, all of the self-flagellation that that you hear time and time again, which is, I think, so unfounded, but I understand it. When you feel like, oh, my mind has is a capable place. And so what happened here? I want to be able to to get to that. I'm wondering if you can also first let us know a little bit about your life before getting involved and what prompted you to get involved and what the group was. 
I want to mention that I grew up in a large family and my, my interest in special education, I think, really founded in my life with my sister. My sister, who's a year older than me, has special needs. And so growing up in that environment, I was the middle child of seven kids and kind of just bounced around a lot. And I think we were pretty, you know, kind of normally, <laughs> I sometimes say like a normally dysfunctional, you know, kind of big family, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, my parents did divorce when I was 16 years old. I wouldn't say that they were, that I was, had any particular trauma before that except a time uh, right before that where um, the farm that I grew up on, we went bankrupt, leaving the farm and, and watching our cows be taken off was truly traumatic. Oh, there's so much about that. So, I mean, first of all, I think people don't realize that they haven't had a farm and other places like it. How attached do you get to all the living beings that are there? Even people get attached to their crops, you know, <laughs> right? Yes. Watching everything grow and bloom and develop. And you really are very, very attached in a very primal way. And to then also have that experience of things suddenly being taken away, it does introduce people to this notion that suddenly that can happen. And there are a lot of people who will go after something that feels more secure um, so that they don't have to experience that again, whatever form that came in, the loss of a loved one, the loss of anything really that felt sudden. Right. Yeah. I appreciate that comment. And it, it kind of dovetails Perfectly with literally my very first session with Doug, who I started to see. When, so I was 34 years old when I started to see Doug. And maybe maybe I'll back up for just a moment and say that after farming, I, you know, I went to I went to school. I did a undergraduate, started an undergraduate degree. I moved further north. I fell in love. I kind of did all those kind of normal things. And um, I became a Waldorf teacher, and that was, uh, I actually worked in a Waldorf school for 19 years. That was actually where I did my work as a special educator, in large part in a Waldorf school. I was also in the public school as well. My training was um, a public school education, as well as kind of that more spiritual lens that the Waldorf scene has. And Although I didn't experience cultic abuse in the Waldorf school that I was a part of, I do believe that it, in a way, primed me for the group that I then became involved, very involved in, starting at age 34. And that the way that it primed me, I think, was that, A, there was all a lot of, um, oh, this psycho-spiritual, mystical kind of orientation to the world, And it was um, a lot of actually black and white thinking, what was right and wrong, good and bad, for especially for raising children. And I could feel my dogmatic self really got a good workout. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and I was humbled by the fact that I I was a teacher and then I was humbled to become a parent. So my daughter was born when I was 33. 
So then it was like suddenly, oh, <laughs> you know, all those judgments I'd had about parents, you know, doing things the right or wrong way. Here I am in this role. So there was a, a great vulnerability for me um, to become a parent, to become a mother. And when my daughter was six months old is when I started working with uh, Doug, who was my teacher for 18 years. In that very first session with him, Rachel, I actually brought a farming dream to him that was about cows. And I also had presented to him that something that I was vulnerable about, which I guess I'm just going to say this. Um, people who've read my book know about it, but it feels a little funny to just launch into it in the in this discussion, but I'll say it, that that I had had a fear for a number of years that I had been sexually abused. And I didn't have any memory of sexual abuse, but it was something that was kind of this recurring bodily experience. And I had done a couple different forms of therapy and had gone to different workshops. And it was kind of in the, in the zeitgeist, really. Of, uh, it was a time when a lot of women my age were, were evaluating their sexuality. And a lot of people were recognizing and reckoning with sexual abuse. So I presented in my, my very first session with Doug that I had this fear that I had been sexually abused, but that I did not have a um, specific memory of sexual abuse. So that's kind of how I presented to him along with this dream that I had. The work that he, that he offered was dream work based, and that was kind of the main focus, although there was also other stuff, different psychology and uh, also astrology as part of it. And I had seen some other friends of mine who were already doing the work and watching them was like, oh, I want that. You know, I see them growing. I see this kind of new light in their eyes. And, and they seem to think that it's all about this work with this guy. So I waited to go to him until after my daughter was six months old, even though I had been aware of him for a good year or so before that. And in this first session, even though I presented a dream about farming, he focused on the fact that in my dream, there was a man who I thought was abusing his wife, who was my friend and was my friend in real life. And so Doug focused on that dynamic, the fact that I believed the man was doing something terrible and there wasn't any like evidence of that in the dream. So it was really dismissed in that session. I learned about his orientation to emotions and to the animus, who's the psychological male. And then what he never asked me about is something that you have already responded to, Rachel, is my experience in farming and how formative that was. And Rachel, it was literally, I don't know how many months but I saw him every other week for three, four, five, six months before he even knew that farming was part of my background and really an, an integral part of who I am as a person. So I just feel so touched by your acknowledgement 
of life on a farm being something so um, so life affirming and I and my identity was really very much established in those years. And how dismissive it was, how dismissed I was by this guy I hung out with for 18 years. <laughs> how interesting. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're very welcome. I, you know, I wonder, I wonder about that with a lot of people who talk about going to see therapists, going to see coaches, a lot of other people, where they feel like the coach has taken them in a certain direction or the therapist has taken them in a certain direction because that's what their training was or that's what their interest is. And sometimes I'm I'm not necessarily saying that therapists don't don't do this. I'm the only one who does it, certainly not. But some what you want to do is just listen. And so for someone to have an agenda and be able to say, okay, hold on, let me put that aside. Same thing with parenting. You know, I have something I wanted to talk to you about, but I see there's something else on your mind. Let's start there. I do think it is very interesting that here, I'm sure in retrospect, there are a lot of things that you could think about with your work with Doug uh, that took you in different directions, maybe different than, yeah, right? Um, very different. Very, very different. And I wanted to say something also before we continued about the Waldorf schools, because it's something that other people have mentioned uh, here and there on the podcast. It's something that people have come to me about as clients. And this is not meant in any sort of defamatory way, but rather just to educate people that it has its origins in a certain kind of philosophy or theosophy. And it is important for people to know the origins of the ideas, of the educational ideas, the Rudolf Steiner woven into it and just to just to know and to then be able to make a fully educated decision about how you're going to be participating in the process as a teacher or how your child is going to be educated based upon that. I really appreciate that because there is a I think a lack of transparency in within anthroposophical circles about this ginormous, if I can use that sophisticated word, context of spiritual, I don't like to use the word mumbo jumbo, but there is a lot of it in there. There is complex, very complex, a spiritual, they call it a spiritual science. And they say that it's not at all a part of what a child experiences in the in the Waldorf school. And yet the teachers, as a teacher, I was immersed in these studies of the, the spiritual science. And how did that impact me and my work as a teacher and, and the children that I was with? It's not disconnected. The two can't be separated. Right. And even though I've never taught there and I haven't had a child who's gone there, just from the families I've worked with, there once things I mean, some some love the schools and they love the the softness of it and the focus on nature and natural products and and really uh, being not just immersed in technology and you know there there's a lot about it that's really good but you want to know why let's say you can only draw 
yellow in fourth grade or something like there are things that you're suddenly presented (laughs) with. You're like, what is that about? Why? And I, you know, it's good to understand why. And also if it is something you actually need to worry about as a parent moving forward, like if you're doing something in the quote unquote wrong way, but based upon what, if it's based upon anthroposophical thinking, then if you're doing something different, Maybe you're not necessarily doing it the wrong way. Maybe you're doing it in a way that's more informed about child development and modern awareness of education, which, you know, the the basis of it was not. Anyway, it is, it's just more about sort of do your research. Do your research. And also, it, to me, it dovetails with another really important point about cultic involvement. And that is that there's always, almost always good that is there. And there's a lot of truly beautiful, authentic, very healing and important tenets of Waldorf education, of biodynamic farming, you know, of all the the anthroposophical way of caring for the elderly. Truly, I have a huge respect for a lot of what actually takes place in these settings. It's the fact that hidden... It's the hidden stuff that makes it less trustworthy. And it's only in some environments where it's hidden and really considered where, in my mind, it becomes untrustworthy when there's this uh, sacred science that only certain you can, it's only available to you at a certain point. And we will determine when you're at that point to be able to accept this special knowledge. Yeah, no, it's problematic. The, the the problematic part in going back to t- talking about Doug then is that when something is presented in a certain way as being uh, from a spiritual basis, you might feel that then it would be wrong of you to argue with it. It w- there would be hubris or it would be anti-spiritual and that you're just not opening yourself up to it or opening your heart up to it and that you need to because it has sort of this aura of perfection around it when there's something spiritual. Same thing with, at times, working with a professional who is sitting in a certain chair in the room, who has a certain title, and you think what they say somehow must be right or true, uh, and you lower your defenses there too. So, so right, I think there can be a lot of conditioning leading up to that. Exactly. Okay, so here is your meeting with Doug. I'm curious what your first impression was. I went into my first session with the social proof of my friends having already elevated this man to something, um, you know, that he had special gifts. So I went in wearing those glasses, those rose-tinted glasses, and my first impression of him (laughs) was... I was surprised about a couple aspects of his physical nature, you know, just because who knows why you form different impressions of somebody. This was, you know, I didn't see him. I didn't check out his website. He didn't even have a website to check out. So I had no preconceived idea of what he looked like. So that was kind of funny. I was a little put, I was definitely put off by the way that he would like, peer at me from across his big desk. So he was at a, sitting at his big desk and 
I'm sitting in a chair, you know, and so there's this great big desk between us. So it was a bit intimidating to be with him. And yet I also, you know, I wanted the goods that he was delivering. And I did truly experience a deep, what I thought was like a deep learning. The way that he worked with my dream and the way that he showed me how I could grow from my dream was very compelling. Like it was very, it was like, oh, like I really appreciated that. And he was also very direct in in acknowledging my fears of having been sexually abused and said, we're going to put that to the side now. If it's really an issue, it'll come back up in another dream. And there was something about that that was actually, I have to say, Rachel, truly helpful for me because it was something that I was maybe a little bit obsessed about. And I think that it was kind of impacting my marriage and to just kind of have somebody who I projected authority onto um, say, let's just put it to the side and see if it comes up. So there was something helpful about that. Mm -hmm. That's very calming. Right. When someone doesn't lean in and say, oh, well, let's dig right into that, (laughs) Uh, which I think would make anyone a bit nervous and potentially feel not ready for that or think that the person has already decided that it's happened and that's why they want to go in that direction. I think there is something nice about that kind of dance when someone takes a step back and they give you that space to be able to decide or or have it sort of be formed as you're working together, if it is. So yeah, I think that is actually a really nice style. Whether or not it's true is another mm-hmm. subject, right? Exactly. Because <laughs> it might come up in another dream or it might not, and that might mean something or it might not. But still, it is nice to have someone give you that space. That's true. Now, back to, because I'm always curious about people's first impressions. And in retrospect, a lot of people will review the first couple of meetings and notice the things that they noticed but didn't follow through on or notice the things they didn't notice. Exactly. I think it's a great question because there were red flags in that first session. And I'd say the biggest one was him failing to query about my relationship to cows. Like there were cows in the dream we were talking about. And he never asked me anything about cows. Like there was no discussion about the fact that I lived on a farm and that I had gone through a bankruptcy and like watching my beloved cows be carried down this long driveway away. But you continued to come back, which I think people do if they feel like they've signed up for something and in order to work on something, get some benefit, you need to continue coming for a period of time. So what was the experience like? Just sort of take us through what it was like and how it shifted things for you. So my husband was also seeing Doug at the same time. So there was this way that that he and I and our mutual friends were excited. We were in this um, kind of stage of discovery. And there was something, we, we both had been involved in anthroposophy, although he was not a teacher. He had been involved in the school as well. And there was something that was so refreshing about Doug's approach 
to working with this, with dreams and this whole spiritual orientation that had kind of a wildness to it that was much more free and exciting. And each new session, there was new insights that our dreams were revealing to us. It, it was like this whole new world and very different from kind of the stuffy uh, anthroposophical study groups that we had been a part of for many years. So it actually brought this like sense of adventure and excitement, you know, into our, our life that I'd say the first five years were really wonderful. I actually divide up my experience in five different stages. You know, I call that first stage falling, you know, falling in love, but also falling asleep. Then there was this period that I actually call drifting, like that time when you're like almost going to sleep, but you're in that little and liminal space because there was about eight years when I was in that period. And that was when I was becoming more committed to the work. So my husband and I did couples therapy with him. We also started this whole exciting thing of retreats. So retreats were taking place up at this big, you know, beautiful retreat center that was not far from our home. And, and we felt particularly special that we lived fairly close to where the retreat center was. And so that kind of by proximity, we had, you know, some special relationship to that land. Like so at that point, like during that eight-year period of drifting, it also included a time when my husband and I moved away, you know, from this where the work was centered. We called it the work. Lots of you've heard that before, the oh, work, yes. I'm sure. Yes. So <laughs> once often. or twice. Oh yeah. Once or yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. One or two thousand times. Isn't yeah, that interesting? Right. <laughs> yeah. So we were another, you know, the work. Mm-hmm. And so we moved away from the work for two years. And that ended up being a time of where the work really started to intensify and form, and there started to be a school forming around it. And the first book was published and There was a lot of excitement and I was like, wait, I'm now five hours away and all of this is happening up there. And we ended up moving back after two years really to what I thought was because I wanted to be more involved. And so at this point now, I've been involved for many years and the work was how do you say, it's like, I mean, you know about like large group, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. the LGATs, you know, like we would, in these retreat settings, they were deeply emotional, deeply like digging, digging into our, you know, psyche. I would, I can't believe we've spoken this long and I haven't mentioned the word pathology because pathology was what kind of kept the machine of the work going because we had to overcome our pathology. So each dream would reveal the side of ourselves that had to be, that had to be reckoned with, that we had to um, look honestly at and be brave and fearless about um, dealing with. So we were, you know, honestly, there was a lot of, I think, false memories that were 
part of what was happening. I didn't, of course, I didn't think of it that way at the time. There was also a lot of, um, with the retreats, we had increasing amounts of money that were being spent. And my husband and I, you know, did not have a lot of money. So when we made a commitment for both of us to do the work, for both of us to do um, couple sessions and to do retreats, the impact on our finances was enormous. And when we moved back after that two-year period, there was this kind of desperation. Like I had invested so much at that point. And the work now had school and classes and small group things and activities outside of you know, the, um, at first it was semi-annual and then it, then we were having retreats four, five, six, seven times a year. And you were expected to, to go to them. And at this point, I was like desperate for the work to work. Like I had invested so many years, 12, 13 years at this point, And I believed that it was working. I believed that I was growing and deepening. And I also was becoming increasingly dependent on Doug. And the last five years of my experience were the stage that I call asleep. And in that asleep time, we experienced um, bankruptcy. I was totally dependent on Doug, not only for everything to do with my marriage and my personal life, but also my business life. I had bought, at his encouragement, I bought a business, a cleaning company, actually, and I hired somebody else who was part of, you know, part of my family, you know, I family with air quotes, um, who was also doing the work. And I needed sessions from Doug about my working relationship with my office manager, so it was even more money going into his pocket. I mean, there were times I had taught, would go through periods where I felt like I needed to have sessions um, even more than weekly or every other week. I had a period where I did a session every single day because I was desperate. And I thought I was right on the edge of breaking through, finally breaking through to my authentic self so that I could be truly the woman of God that I was meant to be. That was like the promise, the unattainable goal. Also in the um, asleep period, a beloved friend of mine who was part of the work also for many, many years died by suicide. Wow. And that was an intense experience in the group, but it was not enough to wake me up. Doug was so completely the man, the only person who really knew me and could really truly help me. My dependence on him was very extreme. My husband left the work two years before I did. And also during, during that period, I became even more involved. It kind of freed up our finances so that I could like finally be on executive committee. I could finally be part of the decision-making body of the organization. I was very involved in, you know, promoting, of course, recruitment, promoting the school where we were all training to be therapists, dream therapists ourselves. 
Also during the asleep period, my brother died very suddenly. Oh, so sorry. And I did not go to his funeral because there was a retreat scheduled at the same time. And I truly believed that I would be better served by being with my true family <laughs> instead of my birth family. Of course, that's a, a decision that I, that I still regret profoundly and many other things as well. Right. I, I want to say a few things. I mean, not, not that this lessens the amount of emotion that is stirred up when you think about the choices that you made along the way by me saying that happens 99% of the time. But I wanted to let you know that happens 99% of the time because things are presented as more important, not only, not just more important for you, but more important in this very global spiritual way. And that you can't risk, you can't risk losing standing, like backpedaling. You can't risk not showing your commitment because that of the carrot, you know, things are right around the corner. And so it's, it's way too risky and that becomes your focus. And I think if you are someone who was raised thinking about other things, caring about other things, also part of being on a farm, right? Not, not just thinking about yourself, then just going into a mode where you're putting yourself before somebody else, or you're putting that work before someone else is so not like you. It's hard to look at that person who you were made to feel like you needed to be during that time. Yeah, exactly. That person that I had become was someone who was not trustworthy, you know, was someone who could actually hurt other people <laughs> by speaking out of line. Like I was, there was a period where I, or an intervention where I was literally, um, where Doug actually had someone strangle me put his not fit not with pressure but put his hands around my throat to teach me what it was like when I was speaking from my pathology versus which was he, he was often very crude and would say things like oh there you go again Jurette blowing smoke up so-and-so's ass you know like where where are you going with that comment you know, there was this profound dismissal of anything that I had to say that was important to me. I was profoundly diminished and dismissed from my thoughts, from my ideas, which then, of course, perpetuated the dependence that I had on Doug to show me what was authentic, what was the good stuff. And some of it was, some of it he was right on about. So it's not, it's not that it was you know, just like the whole thing with anthroposophy and the Waldorf schools, like there's some good stuff in there. There was definitely some good stuff in my experiences in that group. And the over, yeah, the overarching it, trauma that I experienced uh, certainly wasn't worth it and not something that I would wish on anyone else. A couple things. I remember one time, and I've talked about a workshop that I did here on the podcast, but just briefly, I did a workshop one time when I was the school counselor for a variety. It was a whole school system that had special needs programs. So I asked the teachers when I did this summer workshop in prep for the year, on one 
piece, one side of a piece of paper, what they remembered that was positive that they had heard from teachers throughout their life. And then on the other side, what was negative? You, sh- you know, maybe don't think about going into math because, you know, or, or architecture, you're not good at math or don't join the choir. You pick up an instrument, your voice isn't good enough. The things that stay with you. But that there was also this other piece that it didn't necessarily cause those people, the teachers, to have a negative feeling about that teacher at times. It just caused them to have a negative feeling about themselves. And that was fascinating to me because how dare that person say that? You're in fifth grade and someone says, oh, you know, you're not good at X. What, what is that? Well, that's your fault. Right? Like you haven't, you haven't figured out how to teach me this in a way where I can take it in. Okay. I, that's more, on, that's a you problem, right? That's not me. But still it becomes something that you think is your issue, but you still hold that person up with a certain amount of regard thinking that they, they were right about what they said. And they might've been in a bad mood. They could have resented the fact that you were better at them at it than them. Who knows where that came from? But yeah, sometimes when people are harsh and you're talking about him being crude or crass, people think, ah, well, he's a strong presence and he must really mean what he says and he must be right. So we give over so much power in that way. Yeah, exactly. And that is such an important phenomenon to be aware of as a as a human consumer as a human relater, you know, like we relate to people all the time. And when do we defer our authority to someone else? And, you know, here I was, I'm in my, you know, 40s going through this. It's not like I was a 16-year-old even, or even in my early 20s. I already had a sense of self that was being systematically eroded by the strategies that he used to cultivate dependence, to create this kind of black and white thinking. And and also because, you know, he was sitting on the other side of the big desk, you know, like that gave him some clout. Right. How interesting. Gave him clout, kind of this superior place where he was behind, it's like being behind a podium kind of the, the the wizard behind the curtain also, right? You, you're not really seeing the person. You can't see them in their, in, in total, or even maybe it, he was awkward. You know, there's some people you find out once you see them and the way they're talking to you, you might see that they're wringing their hands. You might see that they're just, you might see their humanity, but they can hide themselves behind things, and which I always find so interesting and diagnostic. The other part is about it being diagnostic. So here, a lot of things were, th- sounds like thrown at people as diagnoses. This is your pathology. That is a whole murky water that is very hard to untangle when you leave it. And I know you said that you left suddenly, which we'll talk about, but it doesn't mean that you leave all of this idea that you that you have pathologies behind just because you've left. That's a whole, that's the whole next step, I think. So I'm curious what led you to, to leaving when you said you left suddenly, because even, even though you said suddenly it's never sudden, right? There's always like things that start to kind of fall apart or come together in your mind. And so I'm wondering about that process and what got you to leave. So I had mentioned earlier that when, after my husband stopped going, it created the space where I dove in deeper. 
I was part of this executive committee and I was becoming even more and more involved. Like I was being given very like little baby steps towards leadership. One of the things that happened in this um, organization is that some people were promoted very quickly through the ranks. And some people like me groveled and groveled and groveled and kept working and working and working, um, did a ton of volunteer work, like, you know, countless hours, but never actually got into a leadership position. And so I was, I felt as though I was starting to get there. You're going to laugh at this example though, Rachel, because when I joined executive committee, I was given a task of note taker, but to be the note taker, I actually had to have an uplink who would teach me how to take notes in the right way, who when after every executive committee meeting, I would have to send my notes to this uplink and then the uplink would make corrections. I would make sure that I understood those corrections and why subtle words had to be um, identified and made sure they were not in there and different people had to be referred to in special ways. And then, and only then, could the bloody executive committee notes be submitted. Wow. It's like, oh. And this is this was after 16 years of being in the group. I was treated like that. Oh, so many, so many things to say about that. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, it's like being on probation constantly. Yes. You're having to prove yourself all the time. You haven't like reached this point where you you are trusted, where you can also be seen to be capable, where you need to have your work checked and corrected, and then you need to understand it. So you're constantly this student. And I think that does maintain the hierarchy. It keeps you not on sure footing because you don't feel like you've mastered anything quite yet. Right. And also, it's a lot of busy work. I mean, for what? Well, who cares, right? Ultimately, but you're right. in it. Exactly. So you're, okay, right. so, but also why do notes need to be taken and why do they need to be just right? It sounds like a lot of content and activity was manufactured to keep people busy. Oh, yes. Yes, because there was also the whole email process. Everyone who was part of the school uh, and there were different levels and you could have, of course, there were different levels with varying uh, degrees of involvement and commitment. When you were committed at a higher level, which as I was um, in the end, you had to write emails anywhere from daily to a minimum of, of weekly in which you reflected on your work, your work meaning the dream work and the homework assignments that Doug gave you out of every single session that you had with him. So you had to reflect on your work and how your work was impacting the group that we were committed to, because we were this kind of sacred experiment. And we had to keep the container of that group as pure as possible. So people needed to own their pathology. They had to be able to articulate what it was that was getting in, in the way of them achieving a truly divine 
enlightenment. We didn't use the word enlightenment though, but in this setting, it's easiest to say that. I mean, that I could be the woman of God I was meant to be. That was more the language that we used. Um, And our pathology were the minor aggressions that would get in the way of that, where we might become resistant to something. So we had to write these emails to very discrutinize our behavior and give any examples of where our pathology had become enmeshed in a an interaction or a relationship within the group. And then not only did we have to write these emails, but we had to read everybody else's emails. So I would spend hours every day reading and writing emails. So that was another part of the busy work um, that took place, as well as, you know, various preparing for different events and, you know, recruitment kind of activities, all of that as well. So In that kind of environment where I was in the executive committee and getting little tiny, tiny little baby steps of some more leadership, like I was allowed to be the one to drive the the four-wheeler thing up to the retreat center. I mean, like, (laughs) I saw that as just like this really big deal. Like it was a really big deal for me. And it was fun. To be allowed to do that was a big deal. To be Doug's kind of assistant at an away retreat was a really big deal. So I got to have that honor in that last year. What I didn't know was that behind the scenes, there were many cracks in that leadership that I was oblivious to. I thought that the executive committee was the decision-making body of the organization, but it wasn't. There were like four tiers above that, you know, because there was then this leadership circle of six people. Above that, there was like a foursome. Above that, there was Doug and his wife. And above that was Doug. But being on executive committee, I thought that I was like the in crowd. But there was everything that was really happening was above that circle. That leadership circle, those six top leaders left the organization literally on the same day. And of course, there was a lot that went into that. But from my perspective, it was like absolutely earth shattering. And we had one last executive committee meeting the very next day. Doug did not go to that meeting, but the other six teachers were there, the ones who left, plus the rest of the executive committee. And in that meeting, I I went into that meeting with one question and one question only because I was like my life had been, I felt like my life had been shattered. And each person, like anytime you leave the organization, you have to write an email saying why you're leaving. Each of those six leaders had written an email describing their decision, referring their particular dreams and their particular, okay, you know, this is what my work is right now. Therefore, I'm leaving. But not one of them said why they were all leaving on the same day. And that was the only question that was, that mattered to me. It's like a major what the fuck. Like, how could we be in this? How could we be this close and this tight? And all of a sudden, all six of you are leaving on the same day? Like, what is going on here? So I went into the meeting with that one burning question and it was not answered and not answered and not answered and not answered until 
Rachel, it was literally the last five minutes of the meeting. One of the six teachers, she was, of all the teachers, she was the quietest. She was an artist, a poet, had a quiet, deep persona. Made Probably I projected the most onto her, but I really deeply cared about her. And she described how Doug would call her and berate her hour after hour after hour. And I knew, sitting in that room, that what she was saying was true. And that reality did not match up with the man that I had put up on a pedestal for 18 years, four months, and 28 days. And that was the crack. A friend of mine who was also in that meeting sitting across from me said, Jarette, I saw it happen. I saw that shift in you. And I, I didn't talk to anybody else. I left that meeting. And by the time I got home, it was a long drive home through the woods, through the wilderness. And when I got home, I had a, a very powerful experience just standing on the land of my driveway, you know, at the edge of my driveway. And I realized it was like this sudden shedding. And this may seem completely like wacky, but my experience then was that when I stood there, I like heard the words, it is over. And, you know, I think those words were like coming from the depth of my being, who for all those years had a projection onto this man and that he did that to this, to Kaylee, this particular leader, was absolutely unconscionable. And so from that moment, there was this unraveling over the next week of each day there being another thing that I was letting go of. And like, okay, I'm no longer a part of the organization called CTL, you know. Okay, another day I'm not going to, I'm canceling my next session with Doug. I'm done seeing Doug. And I, I actually was doing some paid work for Doug at the time. Um, and I actually was like, okay, I can continue doing the paid work because I need the money. Um, if he wants me to, I'll keep doing that. I can separate, you know, I can, I because I know the job. I can do a good job at it. So yeah, that's like my snapping. That's what I call snapping. Because mine, in retrospect, Rachel, I do see there were cracks that led up to that, but the, the, it was really that moment, you know, in the last five minutes of the last executive committee meeting that it all ended. It's incredible. It's, it's interesting too. One of the first books that I got when I first started doing this work in the early nineties was actually called Snapping. Rachel, I had that book on my shelf the entire time I was in CTL. How interesting. And it was, I pulled it off the shelf within a week of that, of that time and was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> of course, snapping is more about the sudden personality, you know, like snapping into, into right. mm -hmm. the cultic mm -hmm. group. Um, and my experience was very much the, you know, the snapping out. So, but yeah, so I'm glad that the, your snapping was snapping out. 
uh, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's so interesting about hearing you talk about this woman was that it validated your experience, but it also triggered your conscience. That seems so pivotal here because that's who you are. And that's probably why in retrospect, the thing, the decisions you made bother you as much as they do, because it's because you could connect with her experience of her being a gentle soul and being mistreated and berated that that was beyond what you could tolerate. Exactly. Like that is to really consider how in these controlling groups, how conscience is messed with, how we are, how we are severed like a wall. It's like a wall is built between us and our conscience. And wherever those cracks can be made in that wall, that's the good work of helping people to, you know, truly do the healing and become back into the center of their own life and living from, from themselves rather than from this outer external narrative. Right. How interesting. Right. So here you heard the voice and it was yours. You know, there are a lot of people who would attribute it to other things and that's fine. I, I think, you know, whoever's voice you heard it in, that was, it was your thought. It is over. Yeah, it is over. And then what? Because that was your life. So it takes a lot of bravery to get to even say it is over because, you know, comma and question mark. And now what? Right. Now what? Yeah. So the now what uh, for me has been almost right away. I, I had this question, of course, that of like, how did I, you know, an educated, caring mother, wife, business owner, how did I get, how was I that lost for that long? Like what went into, how did I get there, you know? And there were two things, two resources that I found right away. One was given to me by a good friend who had been watching me and knew that I was in a controlling group all the time. And she was incredibly present and incredibly gracious when I got out. And she handed me, like a, I think it was a 12-part CD set of uh, Dr. Dan Siegel's The Neurobiology of We. And his work on attachment theory, of course, but also his perspective on creating a coherent narrative out of a traumatic experience. That changed my life and has truly, truly been, it is what inspires me in my work today, where I, I now offer writing um, support for people in cult recovery. Um, but the other important resource for me when I first got out was the, the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It is my most favorite book. It's like one of my, like, you know, it stays with me. It's actually like right here next to me right now. Even though I haven't opened it in a while, it's still always nearby. Because what he describes is um, that when, how we think, there's actually two different systems of thought, the fast system and the slow system. 
The FAST system is what we rely on for survival. It's how we kind of navigate the world. You know, when we have to make a quick decision, we, we use our quick thinking mind. And, um, and it, you know, really, we depend on it day to day in a huge way. And our slow system of thought is something that only comes out when we actively call on it. And when we actively call on this, then our critical thinking can come online. So we have to slow down in order to access that part of our thinking system. And for me to take in this information at that point, having gone through what I did, being the special educator that I was and on some level always will be, that's what, what was so powerfully helpful for me because I realized everything we did in CTL under Doug's tutelage was fast thinking, that we had to we had to kind of keep ourselves in this state. Not only like, you know, I mentioned the homework earlier, we were expected to do our homework multiple times an hour so that we would actually interrupt our thinking to do our homework of reflecting on our dream assignment that we had. So there were ways that he was, this work was actively preventing me from accessing a critical part of my thinking self, which was, you know, my ability to think critically. (laughs) And so to have, you know, to have that unavailable to me for as as long as it was, was devastating. And so between that and then the work of Dr. Dan Siegel and realizing the importance of the coherent narrative, I started writing. I started telling my story bit by bit, kind of eking it out just to my friends and then gradually a little bit more to family. And I experienced that when I spoke and wrote that my, you know, neurology was integrating, that I became less anxious, you know, and and that that process of integration was and continues to be such a such an essential part of my now day-to-day cult recovery for myself as well as the work that I do with others taking the time to write being able to be with your thoughts not being rushed not being interrupted there've been studies about interruptions and even the quickest interruption that it, it takes so much longer than after that to get reoriented and shift back. And you might forget what you were just about to think or do or write. So it really sets you behind. It's reminding me of Keith Ranieri with these readiness drills where people had to be ready all the time to have their phone ready all the time. You couldn't really sink your mind into anything. You had to be hyper aware of the time of um, having your phone ready or doing the homework. And what's also unfortunately clever about that is that it keeps Doug on your mind all the time. And he needed that clearly. Uh, but I think also just the sense of group responsibility, as you mentioned before, that you had to do something not just for yourself, for him, but 
there was this other piece that I'd love you before we finish up just to talk about what that does, that that feeling that you were responsible for the growth of the other people there and being a part of helping them and or not hindering them and how that played out and also what that did to you. There's a lot of sadness for me around that question now, still today, particularly because I had so much belief in the importance of our relationships. What I know about myself today is that I'm a very loyal person. And that loyalty was something that Doug leveraged for his benefit, you know, and and my demise. So I was also loyal to the group. I was loyal to each one of, you know, my fellow uh, CTL members. And I really believed that I was special and important to them as well. And there, there are a few relationships that have survived, but only a few. And it pains me. It was a small group. It's not like this was a um, ginormous group. This is, you know, I call it an everyday cult because we were, we were just this kind of small padiddly group that was, you know, amorphous. We didn't have to live together. We didn't have to tithe we just had to pay for everything. But I thought we were deep, fast friends. But after CTL ended, because I don't think I mentioned that, that the, the organization itself kind of shattered after all six teachers left. And like Doug is still working. His wife is still working. And by the way, that's not, I use pseudonyms here. I, you know, I'm not public about the names or the, um, the name of the group. But there's still a lot of people, you know, within, you know, not that far from, from me that I went through so much with, and there's so little interaction. And it's painful. It's very sad. I've tried to maintain some friendships. And I've also been deeply involved in my own recovery, and I know everybody else has too. So, you know, I also kind of give a lot of space, but I, I wish that, that there was more interaction. What is beautiful now is that with my book, there have been a number of people who have reached out to me, and that has begun to make a few links where we have been able to share in a truly authentic way what our experiences were. And I, I really welcome that. And hope that there's more of it. And, you know, it's complex. There's a couple people I know who are still involved with, with Doug and his wife. And I have also received some, um, you know, attack on my character because of, well, who knows why, you know, because of their perception of me, you know, whatever. And so I've kind of been, I've known that that would happen. And it has happened, and that's also sad. Um, so I think that's why I feel kind of sad when you ask that question right now. Yeah, I understand. I think the idea when you put your story out there, by and large, you're going to hear some comments that feel really very good, that make the effort feel worth it to have put it down, that, that sometimes you're offering people ways to understand not only your experience, but maybe an experience that they've had and the words to use to describe it. Uh, and they don't feel alone, which is a wonderful thing. And yes, 
also, just as I've experienced, everyone in this field has experienced, you get it, you get attacked for a lot of reasons, but usually not having anything to do with what you've done. Just that, you know, you are presenting information that people feel they need to to contradict because they're not either ready to see it, ready to look at it, or they feel it's going to still win them points, for lack of a better term, with the people who they're still trying to impress and show their allegiance, even if the leader doesn't have allegiance to you, no loyalty, et cetera. You know, a lot of the groups are really, they, they continue to be run by the fact that the people in it have a sense of loyalty and allegiance and want to show themselves to be good followers still and good students of the work. In any event, I'm I'm so happy that you were able to to write about your experience that you were able to talk with me today about more of your experience. I know there's a lot more to talk about, but just as we're finishing up, how can people find you or what you're providing for former members or people who are wanting to write about their own experiences? Yeah, thank you for that. My website is just my name, jurettebullion.com. And the, the writing workshops that I offer are primarily online, although I had my very first in-person one out in Portland, Oregon, which was very exciting. I hope to do some of those occasionally. And so, yeah, Writing to Reckon, there's a page on my website called Writing to Reckon. And also through igotout.org. And the work that I have done through that organization is some of the work that I am the most proud of. It's a forum in which people are supported to share their story in a way that's truly safe for them. One of the things that we really highlight through I Got Out is finding a safe way to tell one's story. You know, it can be done anonymously. And I definitely experienced for myself that creating a coherent narrative, like actually just getting the story written, can be so powerful. And sometimes that's enough. That's plenty. You don't have to do any more. Some people, it's important to share and actually have feedback and validation from other people. And that can be done publicly with their name or anonymously. And for others, it becomes even all the more so, like writing a book or there's so many ways, so many different ways of telling one story. It can be uh, through movement, through dance, through poetry, through, um, you know, uh, expressive arts of all different kinds, you know, through a painting and drawing. And um, I think that creativity is such an essential part of the recovery process. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I know we will speak again, but I really do appreciate all your insights. And I'm so glad that you are at this point in your life and that you're able to have this behind you, but still hold on to it enough as this cautionary tale for others, which is a very important part. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, Rachel. I so deeply appreciate it. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Durette, not only for our conversation today, but with the work that she does in the community and helping to give people a voice. We have certainly partnered on that in terms of 
how we are trying to give people who have been through these experiences a chance to know that they don't have to stay silent. They don't have to be too afraid to talk. Something interesting about my conversation with Jarette, too, is something that I notice that sometimes when people tell their story, and they're used to telling their story as they're used to telling their story, when they're asked certain questions, it helps them think about things in a different way. And I know that's something that happened during our conversation when I asked the questions that I might be asking that might be more psychologically based rather than just informational gathering based. And I think it helps people say, huh, I hadn't thought about that. Or, oh, yeah, that actually did make a really big impact on me. I value when I talk to people who ask me questions. I value when I talk to people who bring things up in a different way than I had thought about them before or a different way than other listeners to my story had really responded in the past. And so I am very happy that we had a chance to have this conversation and that I was able to connect with Jarette about a lot that she had experienced that it sounds like she hasn't had a chance to talk about quite yet. What I think is also important to highlight is that if someone decides to change the name of the leader or change the name of the group, they're not being inauthentic. And there are some people out there who are really wanting to know, well, what's the name of the group and who was that leader? And for some people that matters, and in some situations that matters, but there are other situations where it just does not. And in Jurette's, what mattered more than naming people, perhaps, was in what they did to her. What this person felt entitled to do to her, to her loved ones, to her community. What this group also felt entitled to do as a community, to each other. Because they had been egged on, of course, or instructed by the person in charge. Sometimes it's the techniques of influence that matter more than the name of the group. Sometimes it is the attitude of the leader, the entitlement of the leader that we really need to study, we really need to look at, more so than his or her name. And so, from my vantage point, those are the details that actually matter more. Because there are plenty of people who will have learned about a particular cult group and still get involved in a different cult because they learn that a cult is named that. You know, they learn to watch out for that name or the name of that leader. But what they didn't necessarily learn to watch out for was the technique, was the style, was the method, was the way that people got under other people's skin the way that people took control over other people. And those are the things that you want to learn in a much more general way. Here are the things to watch out for. Here are the things that can keep you safe in the world. So you don't necessarily want to just listen for the name of the group or the name of the group leader, but you want to watch to see their behavior. You want to watch to see how much influence they seem to suddenly have over people's lives, how much they can derail people from the life they were going to be living. And I think what's also interesting about having an opportunity to tell your story is you get to say, I have a choice now. I have a choice whether I want to disclose the person's name or not, whether I want to disclose the name of the group or not. I don't have to. Just because I feel like there are people listening who might want to know it, that's actually not something I have to do. 
And part of the joy people get to experience when they're out of a controlling relationship and they're out of a controlling group is that they get to make these choices. That's a sense of agency. Really being aware that you have the freedom to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but you also have the freedom not to. Those are individual decisions and they're yours to make. And I'm glad that Jarette was able to tell her story with the content that I think was a lot more important than just naming or defaming a particular person or group. But also, if at any point she decides she wants to disclose the name of the group or the name of the leader, she can. Again, it all goes back to choice. And you can make choices when you're free. You can't when you don't have that freedom. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.